your Bibles tonight and like to turn to Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30. For lack of a better word, perhaps, it's almost comical, although it's not funny, how dramatic the story of Jacob is. It's just, it's just one mess after another. Walter Brueggemann describes Jacob as the man who is unable to take things as they are. He says that from that first kick in the womb, back in 25-22, Jacob has been trying to force things to go his own way all throughout his life. He's the supplanter who just can't accept the way that God has ordered things. And yet for all the drama, in spite of a life that's characterized by almost nothing but conflict with, with his with his father, his older brother, with shepherds, uh, his uncle who becomes his father-in-law, his wives, one day even his own children, for all of that, he is the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, to whom God has promised his blessing. And nothing the man does or doesn't do will change that. And so as we speak tonight... And we read these things, the soul of Jacob is at rest and joy in the presence of his Lord and ours. But not because Jacob was such a hardworking strategist, not because he was so morally pure and righteous, but because when God makes a promise, God keeps it. And beloved, this is the theme of all scripture more than anything else. When Israel read this story on the borders of the promised land, they What they needed was the hope these stories were meant to give, that God does not forget his promise, that God's purposes are being worked out through a worldly man, a sinful man, in the midst of scandal and deception and conflict. That is the field where the promise of God is being fulfilled. And this is how the text speaks to us tonight as the church in light of our covenant head the Lord Jesus Christ, in the midst of our difficulties living in this world, the fact that God will not forget us or forget his promise to us is our truest and only hope. Let's pray together one more time. Father, I thank you again for your word, and I ask God that for your name's sake, for your son and his gospel, and Lord, for your people, for our faith and salvation and hope and joy, you would Watch over my mouth and my mind to help me preach clearly the truth of your word. Please enable everyone to hear and to believe. And I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you, um, <clears throat> if you remember, we were looking last week, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. He's married to both of them. But in 2931, God opens Leah's womb. Leah bears four sons to Jacob, right? She bears him Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. The beautiful wife, as scripture tells it, the loved wife is barren. The one he wanted is barren. We should not be surprised by this. Sarah, Abraham's wife, was barren, Genesis 11:30. Rebecca, Jacob's mother, began barren in 25:21. As Israel reads, They're discovering that their future would depend completely on God, the creator, the giver of all life, who is also a God of grace, they're reading, 
or there will be no future. So Rachel's barrenness sets the tone for this passage. It's the reason for the rivalry between the sisters. It's the reason the scheme of trying to use handmaidens to get what you want comes up again. It's the reason the children are given the names they have, whether it's to celebrate or to gloat. The text is characterized once again in Genesis by the drama that is created when we refuse to just believe God's word and God's promise. Let's read the first eight verses in Genesis 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Rachel was exasperated at the beginning of this passage. And rather than being the least bit supportive or understanding of her, When she comes to Jacob, he just gets mad. He just gets mad at her in verse 2. He doesn't pray to God for her on her behalf. He doesn't give her any comfort. It's it's it's. He takes it, apparently, and maybe she was, as though she's blaming him for her barrenness. So he tells her, basically, don't be mad at me. It's God's fault. Right? It's on God that you're barren. So Genesis reminds us time and again, we, we never leave the garden. We're still blaming God for the fallout of our own lives, our own decisions, or for anything that's wrong in the world. Rather than looking to him, seeking him, we blame him, right? We're angry with him. So what does Rachel do? Does she pray? Does she seek God? Not that we see in the passage. She pulls a Sarah in verses 3 and 4. She gives her servant Bilhah as a wife to Jacob so that Bilhah can bear children on her behalf, on Rachel's behalf. We've seen this before. It's not good. It doesn't work out. And Jacob doesn't even apparently try to say, is this the best idea? Is this the best thing that we can do here? Neither one of them are trusting the Lord to give them children. The names that Rachel gives uh, to the children that are born through Bilhah reflect the conflict that is still raging between her and her sister, who's also married to Jacob. Remember, the very fruitful Leah. Rachel names these children, showing that they're her children. In verse 6, it seems as though Rachel believes God has given her justice with the birth of her son. So she names him Dan, which is related to the Hebrew word for judge. This idea is even clearer in the next son's name, which is Naphtali, which comes from the Hebrew word group that means struggle or wrestle. So Rachel is fighting with her sister to gain favor from God. The birth of these Children means she's winning, as least as she sees it. But she believes she's prevailed in verse 8 a little too early because more conflict with Leah is coming. Rachel hasn't learned yet to trust in God in these struggles to believe him or to wait. And again, her husband does not make this any easier for her to do. He doesn't lead her towards the Lord. Again, he doesn't 
put his arm around her, pray for her, empathize with her in any way, shape, or form. Now the text transitions back to Leah, who will not be outdone. Right? Pick it up in verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. It seems like Leah doesn't want to have the satisfaction or doesn't want Rachel to have the satisfaction of thinking she has triumphed over her. So she too enacts the Hagar contingency, gives Jacob her servant Zilpah as another wife. Jacob is like the husband on sister wives. He, he, he just, if you've ever seen that show, he, he just, he just goes with whatever he's told, right? He's got all this drama now. He's got four wives, four mothers-in-law. That's a joke. I don't know if you knew him or not, but even though Leah has children of her own already, right? She had four sons. She wants more. And the names of her sons born to her through Zilpah reflect her happiness, her joy in this Struggle. Leah names the first son Gad, which is associated with the Hebrew word for luck or good fortune. It's not even a religious name, right? The second son she names Asher, which is related to the Hebrew word that means happy or blessed. It's, it's almost like she's gloating with this name because uh, it's a reminder of how other women think she's so blessed because she has so many sons. But again, the, the fallout underneath, just think of all this fallout here in this family and these struggles. Now you have two more maidservants in the story of Scripture who have been used and will not be able to have normal relationships with their own sons. I, I know there's some culture happening here, but it could not have been easy to just give birth to children and then basically have them claimed by other women as though they were theirs. And that's it. It's over. They Leave you. They're taken from you. While Rachel and Leah seem to be concerned only with winning, beating the other one, how others perceive them. There's no thought for God or his attitude and perception of them. Notice that they're, they're just grasping, scheming, conniving to get their way to win. But, you know, problem solved, right? They both have their children. We're good. We're not good. The conflict will not subside. It will not. Human nature is relentless. Relentless. Thank God his promise is stronger than us. Or there would be no story of Scripture. Look at verse 14. Pick it up there. This is when he gets really good. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. This is the Bible. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. Leah's firstborn Reuben, what's happening here is he goes into a field, finds some mandrakes, brings them back to his mother. What's the deal with mandrakes? Mandrakes were believed uh, to be an aphrodisiac, even increased a woman's fertility. 
So that while, while there's nothing wrong or sinful with using appropriate human means to achieve a certain result, it's the mandrakes here that are seen as the means of giving birth. Right? So God is not being thought of here. He's not the one that can answer this situation. It's, it's mandrakes that can do it. That's the issue here. You, you see that. Both women have to have them. It's like watching an episode of Dallas, right? Or, or Falcon Crest or something. It's just unbelievable what goes on here. Leah has them, but Rachel wants them, so they strike a little deal. Unreal. And you can, you can hear, if you look at verses 14 and 15, you can hear the pain both women still have inside over all of this. Leah accuses Rachel of stealing her husband's love, that very sad portion of Scripture in the last chapter that Jacob is Madly in love with Rachel. She's beautiful. And the text tells us Leah was not beautiful. Is basically what we, again, I don't say that to be mean or critical. It's just, it's, it's there. And so she's very sad and she doesn't have a good life. Jacob does not love her. He has to be married to her to work out his deal with his father-in-law, who's also his uncle. So she accuses Rachel of stealing her husband's love. And she says, you've done that. You've stolen him. Now you want to steal these mandrakes also. So Rachel says, unbelievably, well, look, you can have Jacob for one night if you give me the mandrakes. Just can you imagine that? She probably thinks Leah will be fertile again with these, so she needs the mandrakes so that she'll be fertile again also. She can't lose this rivalry. So Leah speaks to Jacob in verse 16, just as Rachel had spoken to him in verse 1, right? You see that pattern? Do this right now for me. Jacob makes Adam's mistake two times in this text. He listens to the voice of his wives. The curse remains, beloved. Right? Leah says, you've been hired. Get in here. Jacob, okay. So he goes. Pick it up in verse 17. And God listened to Leah. You hear that? And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. Leah's story is so sad. She just wants Jacob to love her, and he doesn't. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Leah believes that the birth of Issachar was a reward from God because she had given her servant to Jacob as a gift Issachar sounds like the Hebrew word for wages or for reward. Jacob is just passive throughout this whole narrative. That, that's what we're meant to see about him. He's just passive. At, at no point in this does he do anything, make any stand at all. He just does what he's told by his wives. It, it, he's, that's the curse. The wife would decide to rule over the husband, and the husband will decide to let her because it's easier than leading. Right? So he just, that's what he's doing. This is the curse. He lets this conflict fester. He doesn't do anything to help any of his wives. He doesn't step in and say, all right, enough of this. We're going to figure this out. We're going to pray together. We're going to figure this out. In other words, he's not a leader. He's unfit to carry this blessing, beloved. Everything Jacob hoped for in his life, strategized for, to be the chosen child, to receive the blessing, all of it's a struggle for him. Do you see that? None of it comes easily for him. But God is bringing him to the end of his ability to scheme. 
and manipulate things the way that he wants them. Eventually, he'll only have God to trust. Leah bears her sixth son named Zebulun, which is related to the Hebrew word to honor or to exalt. She believes that God has given her a good endowment. She, so she is trying to beat her sister, but she does believe her children are a gift from God. She also gives birth again in verse 21 to a daughter this time named Dinah, who will be very important later on. But listen to these last three verses here tonight. For, for all the drama of this story, for all its seemingly ridiculous and earthly scheming, it reveals that the future of the promise and its blessings still belong to God alone. Think about how deep the rabbit hole here is going. And God is still sovereign over all of it, beloved. Both the births and the barrenness, the fertility and the denial of it, they're all in the hand of God God is ultimately, the text is showing us, the only cause of new life. There's no need to scheme. There's no need to hurt one another. There's no need for envy. There's no need for jealousy. None of these things are called for. None of them fix anything. We just keep destroying ourselves. This family is being destroyed here. Bitterness, envy. God is the only cause of new life. God is on his throne. Look at verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. So the narrative of barrenness that began back in 2931, really, finally ends. God remembered, God heard, God opened Rachel's womb. The God of Israel is named for the first time since 2935 in the passage Yahweh in verse 24. There's no human action whatsoever that causes verse 22. Do you see that? Nothing that a human being did brought about verse 22. It is only God's faithful inexplicable, merciful hearing and remembering that ends this poor woman's barrenness, Rachel. God's remembering was going to be the only source of hope for Israel. Later in Isaiah 49, 15, if God does not have a faithful memory, beloved, as we sit here tonight, so we live our lives here in West Virginia in 2020, if God doesn't have a faithful memory, there's not only no reason for Rachel to expect an heir, there's no reason for Israel to ever expect deliverance, there's no reason for us to expect a future. But God remembers. God always, always remembers. This is the same remembering that saved Noah Back in Genesis 8-1, it's the same remembering that saved Lot for Abraham's sake. In Genesis 19-29, God's remembering, his memory, is at the heart of the gospel. Brueggemann says, we can't explain it. We can only affirm, celebrate, and rely on it. And it was the same for Rachel and for Leah, the two mothers of Israel. One loved, one not loved. One beautiful, one not beautiful. But they both find out 
that barrenness is not a problem that humans have the power to solve. New life is God's gift. Leah summed it up perfectly back in 2932. The Lord has looked upon my affliction. Now, I know that we have means, you know, medically now that maybe barrenness can be reversed, but this isn't what I mean when I say only God can open the womb. I mean to fulfill His promise in opening the womb. Our God looks upon the affliction of His children. Do you hear the text tonight? God does not forget you and I when we are afflicted. He's not gone. He hasn't forgotten. He isn't static. He's just being God. Remember this, beloved. It's almost as if all God does is care for the afflicted as you read Scripture. God presents presents Himself to us in the Word as a God whose habit it is to care for the lowly, the unloved, the born late, the barren, the poor, the outcast, the leper, the widow, the sinner. This is him all throughout Scripture, all throughout his word. In chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, this is the entire premise of the coming of Jesus Christ, that this is the heart of God. This is at the introduction of the gospel. What does it say there? That he has looked on the humble estate of obscure and lowly women like Mary. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He fills the hungry with good things. Has it ever just moved you, blown you away that this is what God is actually like? That this is His character? There is a God and He's profoundly merciful. It is only because God hears and remembers that Joseph is ever born. And his life will not be easy either. We'll get there. But the Lord added, the Lord added Joseph to Jacob and Rachel. He did that. He provided. And he added to the barren one. He added more than either one of them could have asked for or brought about by themselves. And Rachel's hope for more in verse 24 will not go unfulfilled either. Little Benjamin will come along soon. In the midst of all of this, barrenness and brokenness in the midst of all this sin and deceit and jealousy and lewdness and rivalry and conflict of vindictive women and lazy men, God is at work to bring about the promise of his blessing to Jacob, then to Israel, and therefore to the world. And beloved, in the midst of our difficulties living in this world, as we read this text, as Christians in 2020, the fact that God will not forget us or His promise to us is our truest and only hope. He's the same. That's where we draw our strength from this story we're so far removed from. This is who He is. It's who He is now. It's who He was. It's who He's always going to be. When God sent His Son into the world, have you ever thought about that? That He lived in the midst of our conflict in the midst of our deceit and our lack of understanding, our unbelief, our laziness, our vindictiveness, our wickedness, our sinfulness. This son, however, was not passive with it, was he? He didn't just watch. He didn't just do whatever we wanted him to do because Jesus can't be swayed by us. 
Jesus is no Jacob. Jesus came to redeem us. Why? Why was he not passive? Why was he active? Because God doesn't forget the promises he makes. Jesus cannot be manipulated by us. He can't be deceived by us. He can't be manhandled by us. He won't let us take the blessing for ourselves. He won't let us do it on our own. And rather than cast us off for always trying, for always forgetting, all he ever does is hold us more tightly. I don't know the details of what many of you might be going through tonight. I don't know. But I can tell you this. Our God will not forget you. He will not forget us, beloved. Everybody else may. You may find yourself all alone. You are never alone. You're never alone. God is the only one whose memory is sure enough to never forget that we're there. And that we need him. Do you realize that for you? He's the one person in your life that won't forget you. With the best of intentions, beloved, we forget each other sometimes. We forget that each other are there. We forget what each other's needs are. We forget how lonely one might be or how in need someone might be. And sometimes it's just life, right? Just life just goes on and you forget and people get looked over and they get passed over. And God is never forgetting us, ever. His memory is too perfect. It's too redemptive. It's too gracious. It's too loving. It's too faithful for him to ever forget any one of us. Do you know how amazing it is that in the midst of someone like Rachel doing what she did and scheming, God had his eye on her the whole time. Do you know how amazing it is, beloved, that as you read Genesis, God never, we never reach a chapter where it says, and so God completely forgot about these people and decided instead to go with this group because they were better. You never see that. You never see that. Don't think that now and you're, that you're the one that's going to buck the system. You're the one that's going to make God say, I'm done with these people. You're not. You're not. When our lives are characterized by difficulty and conflict, when we forget the truth, when we forget the promise, when we refuse to believe it, God hasn't forgotten it. And God won't forget it. We have a better husband than Rachel. We aren't better than Jacob, but Jesus is. And you know, the loudest voice in heaven that would agree with that statement is probably Jacob's. We are a safe, secure, and deeply loved wife tonight. You and I are married to Jesus, beloved. You remember that. You're the wife of God's one and only begotten son. He's not going to go back on his vows. He's not going to make a mockery of them with his attitude, with his treatment of you and I. He's never going to abandon us. He's never going to cheat on us. He's never going to betray our trust. Ever. This is Jesus for you and I. 
Our hope is one thing. God's redeeming memory. The perfection of God's mind and his thoughts on you and I. His decisions for us that took place before we were ever born. God committing himself to us before we even existed is one of the storylines of scripture and it's unbelievable and true at the same time. His promises that are yes and amen in Christ will not be forgotten, nor will be the ones to whom those promises have been made, you and me, right? Jesus will not forget. There's nothing about you God doesn't know. There's nothing about you God will forget. And he loves you anyway. With an everlasting love from which nothing can ever separate you and I. God bless you, beloved wife of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you that you will not forget. That your love and your salvation are relentless. And they go farther than we go, deeper than we go, higher than we can go. You're always more. You're always better. You're always sufficient. You're always gracious. You're always our Savior. And in Jesus, we find the one who will keep his promise to us, Father. And so may your people rejoice tonight, no matter what they're going through. Not in a way that makes light of what they're going through or pretends it doesn't exist. But God, hold your people up. Be near to them. Remind them of the truth again and again and again. And may we take refuge in the fact that we will not be forgotten, that you don't forget what you promise. And this is our hope. And I pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.